Hello, and welcome to Forefront 360, where we take you all around the intersection of the arts and the Christian faith. I'm Nate Mancini. I'm one of the founders of Forefront, and joining me today is Forefront Chairman Rich Chrisman. Hello, everyone. And we have a very special guest with us today, and that is Dr. James Matthew Wilson. Hey, thanks for having me. Welcome to the show. Thanks. Absolutely. So James Matthew Wilson is Cullen Foundation Chair in English Literature and the Founding Director of the Master of Fine Arts Program in Creative Writing at the University of St. Thomas, Houston. He's an award-winning scholar of philosophical theology and literature, and he is a poet and critic of contemporary poetry. His work appears regularly in First Things, The Wall Street Journal, The Hudson Review, and many other publications. He's published 12 books, including six books and chapbooks of poetry. Is this a good representation of uh, what, what you're working on today? Uh, that sounds about right. <laughs> yeah, about half poetry, half everything else. Mm -hmm. So the reason we have the opportunity to speak to Dr. Wilson is because we are together at the Catholic Imagination Conference in Dallas. So a big thank you to Dr. Jessica Hooten Wilson and the team at University of Dallas that made this whole conference and the podcast recording possible. So James, what brings you to the Catholic Imagination Conference and uh, what have you enjoyed most about it so far? Well, what brings me here in the deepest sense is probably Dante, uh, mm. encountering Dante as a teenager and realizing that, um, that there was an entire world that seemed to have been eclipsed or obscured by the contemporary world, but one that was richer, more intelligent, and more profound. Mm. And uh, and so Dante came to me, you might say, simultaneously as a great poet, but also as a kind of spiritual master or a philosophical revelation. And so that's in the deepest sense. Uh, the other thing that brings me here today, of course, is that uh, the program I direct, the Master of Fine Arts Program in Creative Writing, is the only program in the world that is dedicated to forming writers uh, with an excellent sense of craft, but one that is also rooted deeply in the Catholic literary tradition. Yes. We, we heard a little about, about this uh, when we spoke to Paul Pastor mm. yesterday. Yep, uh, we have he, one of our bright students. Yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Yes. So I recently had the chance to read your book uh, of poetry, The Hanging God, also with a beautiful um, foreword by Dana Joya. And uh, I really enjoyed getting, getting into that book, but I know you've written and published uh, additional poetry since then. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if you wanted to uh, read a poem for our listeners to kind of uh, get them initiated into some of your work. Sure. Um, yeah, The Hanging God is a book of which I'm especially proud um, because I think it's, it's, a, it's a book that finds a way to enter into the, the grit and the temptations of modern life. Yes. Um, and work through those by way of the cross. And so the, that book yeah. is anchored by two long poems of 14 parts each, a sonnet sequence called Wiped Out. That is not for the young <laughs> or the faint of heart. <laughs> not for the faint of heart, indeed. <laughs> <laughs> and then A Stations of the Cross, which frankly is also not for the young or the faint of heart. I mean, I think yes. uh, uh, Christ on the Cross um, is, is a mirror of what occurs to the protagonist of that narrative and wiped out as he yes. degrades himself and, and reduces himself to, and empties himself out in the worst way, whereas yes. Christ empties himself out fully in the best way, in the redemptive way. Right. Um, so as much as I love that book, I, if, if I had to choose one poem to share, it would have to be one from my latest book, The Strangest of the Good. Yes. Uh, and it's a poem um, I was commissioned to write a number of years ago. Uh, a magazine asked if, if I had a poem about baptism and I mm. had none. And, but the 
a few weeks later, I was standing in the shower and water was pouring down over my face and suddenly I thought, death, rebirth. And just I was reminded of uh, Benedict XVI's wonderful words in, in his book on Jesus of Nazareth of how truly going through the water uh, baptism is death to your sins. It's not just a cleansing of sins because it's truly a death to the old man and the mm -hmm. rebirth of the new. And then I was reminded of uh, Ivor Winters, who's uh, my, one of my favorite 20th century American poets, uh, not a Christian, though a theist and incredibly rich uh, for Christian readers uh, to encounter. Yeah. He says actually in a footnote to one of his early poems, he must in some way cross or dive under the water which is the most ancient symbol of the barrier between two worlds. And he's talking about mm. a knight going under a wall of thorns and through the moat into the Castle Perilous to achieve sure. his quest. Mm. And I just, and so that, that image of death and rebirth struck me as such a model of what human life in general is mm. and the way in which a journey into the interior of the self, which is a kind of drowning, a kind of death, mm -hmm. uh, leads to our discovering the image of God in us, which then leads us out on the journey of our lives. And so mm -hmm. this poem sort of yes. re-narrates that. It's got a few scenes from rural Michigan where I live as well. Excellent. Through the water. Far back within the mansion of our thought, we glimpse a lintel with a door that's shut, and through which all our lives would seem to lead though we feel powerless to say toward what. It is the place where all the shapes we know give way to whispers and a gnawing gut. And so, in childhood, we will duck beneath the waterfall into a hidden cove. In summer, pass within a stand of pines cut off from those bright fields in which we rove, whose needles lay a softening bed of silence and great boughs tightly weave a sacred grove. When winter settles in and our skies darken, we take a trampled path by pond and wood and find beneath an arch of slumbering thorn stray tufts of fur, a skull stripped of its hood. Then turn and look down through the thickening ice in wonder at the strangeness of the good. And Peter, Peter, falling through that plain where he had only cast his nets before and where behemoth stalked in darkest depths that sank and sank as if there were no floor. He cried out to the wind and felt a hand that clutched and bore his burden back to shore. We know that we must fall into such waters, must lose ourselves within their breathless power until we are raised up, hair drenched, eyes stinging by one who says to us that from this hour we have passed through, we're dead, but have returned, and our new creation come to flower. Thank you so much for reading that. Yeah, I just want to sit with that for a second. <laughs> yeah. What a deeply, uh, like you introduced there, but what a deeply Catholic, but also by definition, a deeply human experience. Mm -hmm. um, like your reference to how like uh, we we do this as as children with no idea of kind of the gravity of what we're we're <laughs> doing as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think Beautiful. I think that's one of the lessons of uh, you know Lewis 
C.S. Mm-hmm. Lewis for yeah. us is that um, so many of the essential forms of what makes life human are the forms that take the shape of a quest or an adventure when yeah. you're mm-hmm. small. And I, I'll t- tell you, I was on a fishing trip up in um, uh, northern Ontario a few years ago. It, it was on a they fly you out by water plane to an island in the middle of a lake and they leave you there for a week. You catch your fish and hope you don't kill yourself and then they come and fetch you out. Amazing. And I had gone there as a boy and had tramped through the woods as a boy to the small little cabin that was then in use. Mm. But now 35 years have gone by. I'm back as an adult. This is back in 2018 mm. uh, with my own kids with me actually. And that cabin has long since been disused and the forest has grown up around it. And I found myself one morning kind of quietly going through the forest, trying to recover the path and making my way back to this abandoned building. And what, I asked myself, what am I doing? Like, do I just want to see this? But in fact, it's that, that movement that's external and in the world is the same movement that's summed up in the first stanza of this poem, which is itself inspired by what St. Augustine tells us in the Confessions, that he's looking mm-hmm. all around himself in the world outside in search of God. Mm-hmm. And then he retraced his memory in his book. He retells the story that's reposed in his memory of how he came to Christ. Right. Yeah. And he realized even telling that story doesn't bring me to God, even though it's the story of how he came to God. It's rather when he looks into the memory that holds that story and then looks deep down to it, like into a great abyss. And there he can see just by a glimmer God's act of creation that calls him to be and in seeing that, however, you know, by however, through the darkness of faith, uh, discovers the presence of God in him, and then his his destiny. Yes. Wow. Yeah. The the hints and whispers and fingerprints of the author uh, unseen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's beautiful. And the connection to like the physicality of it, right? Yeah. Like like there's uh, we can sometimes get stuck in the idea that God is is only in the the ethereal and, and the mental and the, you know, but then we remember that he is uh, physical as well. So, mm-hmm. yes. So one of the, one of the things we do here on four from three sixties, we often uh, reach out to, to others, uh, other authors and artists and, and fans and whatnot to see if they have any questions for people we're interviewing. And uh, we, we got some questions for you from people you may know, um, fans and friends. One audience question for you comes from Joseph Pierce. Mm-hmm. Joseph is director of book publishing at the Augustine Institute and the author of many biographies of Christian literary figures. He asks, T.S. Eliot wrote about great writers borrowing or stealing, which was a candid acknowledgement of the way that the best writers are influenced by the work of other writers. Which writers in general and poets in particular have most influenced your work? Oh, <laughs> that's a... That's an easy question to answer, and for, for two oh, reasons. I, um, I, I published an essay a few years ago called On Poetic Traditions that, um, that sought to show that indeed all poetry and all art is made from other art. The idea of absolute originality or creativity is, is, is kind of a superstition. Making always requires what comes before it, and, and so the new poem is made entirely out of the poems that have come before, mm-hmm. uh, in the same way that no sentence that I might utter is uh, entirely composed of words that pre-existed me or I wouldn't be saying right. them, right? Yeah. Um, it's only a reorganization of words that have other people have used. <laughs> yes, yeah. that's right, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And in fact, um, I mentioned the, the, the sonnet sequence wiped out uh, from The Hanging God a few minutes ago, yeah. and I, I ha- got to give a, uh, just a lecture on the nature of the sonnet 
when I was writing that sequence, this was some years ago, and I said, really, the artistic life has to be compared to walking into a very old, well-furnished room, and you, as a new artist, are going to come into it, and you'll see this, you know, the cigarette box on the table, and you'll move it slightly. Hmm. And that will be your contribution. You know, hmm. I mean, hmm. some people make a bigger contribution. They yes. they put a new chair <laughs> in front of the fireplace. Mm-hmm. But uh, but for for the most part, it's a matter of sort of modest ameliorations. And yeah. and I think this is uh, one of the things about T. S. Eliot is uh, he was such a wonderful poet and a wonderful thinker. He sometimes sounds Mandarin and even pretentious in his hmm. claims, and yet often, almost always, they're true. Mm-hmm. And it's just he hasn't he doesn't deign to give you the argument that shows them to be true. But if you sit and ponder <laughs> them for a while, yeah. and the more, longer I write, the truer and truer they they appear. Yeah. Um, so I would actually mention first T. S. Eliot, and I'll, I'll say that's for a pretty obvious reason that I think Joseph would uh, totally agree with, mm-hmm. and that is um, Eliot's Eliot's story in life was in so many ways comparable actually to Saint Augustine's, mm-hmm. and it was through the life of poetry that he worked his way into the church. And then he sought in his essays and criticism and his poems to cultivate a genuine Christian humanism Mm -hmm. that would be both something in which he could live and which he could share with others. Mm. And so you see things, you know, Augustine was a great writer, but nobody pretends that his words are somehow more important than Augustine the saint, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, And in Eliot, I think that's the case too. There's a genuine striving towards holiness in the man and in his biography that gets echoed and finds artistic form in his works. Hmm. And so that sense of integrating the artistic life, not only integrating the artistic life into your spiritual life and into your intellectual life, but rather actually having the artistic life and the practice of poetry being a way of discovering the truth uh, is really important. I would mention Ivor Winters as well, whom I, yeah. whom I quoted, who, yeah. who I, I would kind of say the same thing there. That guy, there's, there's a wonderful essay by David Yezzy, Yezzy called The Seriousness of Ivor Winters. And it was in reading Winters' poetry and criticism that I learned, uh, or I saw for the first time, somebody saying what I had felt deeply in my gut since I was 16 years old, which was that the making of art is a serious business mm-hmm. because the forms of art open onto the forms of the real. Art is one of the ways in which we know the world. And Winter saw that in an age where everybody else was reducing art to ideology or to expression of your emotions, sure. neither of which make, have the makings of good art. It's rather when you submit yourself to the craft of art, trusting that the craft will eventually lead to an unfolding of truth, that good art gets made and good art gets encountered. Right. So good. Uh, so we mentioned your student, Paul J. Pastor. Mm-hmm. Uh, we spoke with him yesterday. Fantastic conversation here on 4 from 360. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, in that conversation, listeners, if you listen to that one already, Paul brought up the fact that he perceives that there is a unique moment happening in Christian literature right now, or uh, perhaps orbiting specifically um, the school in which you're at. Mm-hmm. Um, so he asked us to ask you, uh, kind of what is the major trend, quote, in poetry in America today, and how does your work relate to that? Okay, I thought I thought Paul was going to ask who's your favorite student, but okay, <laughs> we could do that one yeah. too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, there's too many, um, too many favorites. Uh, so that that question can be can be answered in, in a in a couple ways, okay. um, and and they're almost antithetical. Mm. The major trend in poetry today is the rise of 
of a sort of uh, mawkish popular free verse poetry. That's Instagram kind of, poetry? Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. yeah. The Insta poets, as some people call them. And and that's something to um, to take very seriously, even if it's impossible to take the work seriously as and to approve it as good. Mm-hmm. Um, because what it shows is uh, a deep hunger for works that actually explore the main human feelings and themes. Mm-hmm. And also, uh, there's a desire to see those themes find permanent expression. And I know one of the insta I won't mention by name, I read a profile of, of the, the poet in um, a magazine, and the interviewer followed, followed this poet around, and she was very concerned with picking out the next paper, or the, the quality of paper for mm. her next book. Mm. She mm. wanted the book itself to be an artifact, a work of art. Yeah. yeah. What that says to me, what that gives expression to, I think, is this deep human urge for permanence. Yeah. And even if it's, there could be nothing more ephemeral than an instapoet or whatever you want to call it, mm-hmm. even this ephemeral phenomenon speaks of, again, the need to find expression for the great human emotions and the desire to make those expressions permanent so that they'll be available to other people mm-hmm. to know, to encounter, and to feel. So that's, you know, it, it doesn't give one much hope when you work really hard on a poem and, uh, and you take seriously the, the craft of, of making a poem that, that some vacuous thing on a typewriter <laughs> is right, getting yeah, this yeah, much yeah, attention. Yeah, yeah. But, I, but I, I, I think we need to appreciate um, what's actually being expressed, however, just below the surface there. Sure. Yes. But there's another uh, trend, uh, and, it, and this is one has been building for a long time. If in the 1970s, unless your name was Richard Wilbur or John Hollander or Anthony Hecht, you couldn't really publish a poem in meter and rhyme in right. a major magazine in the United States. Now, the mainstream poetry world has gone off the rails worse than it was in the 1970s, and for the most part, uh, many of the poets who are appearing in prominent magazines are, are not writing anything that any person could find very compelling, hmm. much less well-crafted. But that is not to say that there isn't good poetry being written today. In fact, there's a lot of it. Mm. Uh, beginning yeah. in the 1980s, there was a real renewal of concern for the authentic craft of verse writing, for the making of, of lines and meter, and the use of rhyme. And so in our age, um, you know, I tried to make a list of all the contemporary poets who were writing, you know, at the time I was sitting there doodling, um, sure. who, who are, who are genuinely accomplished, impressive, important poets. Mm. And the list just went on and on. Mm. Um, and yes. so, uh, you know, that's, that's a great consolation to me because though you have to be picky, you can't just pick up any other, you know, any random poetry magazine and find good work. Sure. If you're so, a little bit selective, you could mm. actually have more than enough contemporary poetry for you to read in your lifetime. Right. Yeah. What an interesting yeah. uh, assessment I, I feel uh, based on conversations we've had this weekend as well mm-hmm. outside of this. I feel like that is uh, an accurate portrayal of the state of the arts at large mm-hmm. where, where, where we have this glut of what I would call like easy art or expressive art. Yeah. But because there's so much of it, uh, if you can separate you know the the extraneous there's a lot there's more gems maybe than there was 50 years ago yes mm-hmm. uh, very cool yeah and similar to like our experience trying to find artists of faith doing great work in their fields that might not be specifically faith-based kind of at first it felt 
these people are difficult to find. Mm -hmm. But like the more you find, the more you find. Once you kind of open the door to excellent art and authentic uh, historic Christian faith, right? Uh, these artists know each other. Yes. <laughs> so, so there's yep. a cool uh, beauty there. Yeah. Yes. Um, so we have another question from Dr. Frederick Turner, who is here at this uh, conference as well. Mm -hmm. Another uh, fantastic poet. Yes. Um, prolific writer uh, and founders, professor of arts and humanities at University of Texas at Dallas. He asks, all the foundational texts of the Christian religion, as of all the great religions, are in the form of literary art, storytelling, myth, epic, lyric, song, hymn, prophecy, drama, dream vision, biography, mm. poetry in the most general sense. Systematic theology interprets those texts as sort of a literary criticism, but is downstream from the original visionary prophetic poetic source. What is the responsibility of a Catholic poet to poetically renew the systematic theology downstream from it at another remove, or to join and add to the original sources, that is, upstream from theology? That's such a long question. You can look at it if you'd like. I, I followed question. the question, but yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a long enough question that you can hear the answer within okay. it. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's, it's, a just, it's, a, it's a just question and a, and a good one. Um, I, th I think actually the intellectual life in the modern age, and, I, and I, if you don't mind my plugging a book, my, in my book, yeah. The Vision of the Soul, Truth, Goodness, and Beauty in the Western Tradition, I talk yes. about this. The intellectual life in our age, and really for the last three or 400 years, took a terrible left turn, hmm. um, again, a couple hundred years ago, more than that. Hmm. And the left turn was this, I mean, it's really going back to Descartes, so 400 years. Um, and that was, it cut off the practice of the intellect, whether in philosophy, in theology, or in the arts, mm. from the actual practices of human life. Mm. If we look mm. back to yeah. Plato, to be a philosopher, a lover of wisdom, does not did not mean you claim to be wise. It did not mean that you had a method that would make you wise. It didn't even claim that you knew anything. Mm. What it meant was that you wanted, you desired with all of the eros of your heart to stand before the truth and stare up into it. Mm. And that's all you ask. Because truth is not a possession, it's something upon which we gaze. It's a way of living. In the Middle Ages, Christianity continued that philosophical tradition with the religious life, with monasticism. Right. It is a practice of life, of knowing. Something happened in the modern age where the practice of living became bifurcated or cut off from the practice of knowing, mm. which is itself a violence to the human person. Mm. Because when we finally know God most intimately, that's when we're fulfilling our way of life. Christ as logos, as truth, is the way. Mm. So right. we wish to follow Christ the logos the way the ancient philosophers wished to gaze up into the good as the, the son of truth. Yes. And so that should have lessons for us whether we are whatever kind of intellectual we may be or whatever kind of person we may be. If you're a poet, if you're a philosopher, if you're a theologian, you need to be, to completely misuse a phrase that comes from Martin Heidegger, uh, we need to learn how to dwell poetically. And what that means is to live in the world and to think about things in terms of the aesthetic holes by which they come to us. And, and, that, and to recognize that the intellectual life is about perceiving those holes that are given to us and about living with them and dwelling with them mm. and having our lives transformed by them. 
To put it simply, that means that the lines that we often draw between, say, devotion and thought, or truth and goodness, morality and knowledge, all these lines, like lines on a chalkboard, need to be erased. And we have to recognize that human beings are wholes that are ordered to the whole. Mm. Persons ordered to God. Yeah. Um, and so what Fred's getting at is that one of the things that that should entail is that poet, you know, there's an old tradition that goes back to Horace and before him, that poets were the first bringers of order into the world because they measured language. They were the first people who numbered and ordered and weighed things mm. so that civilization could occur, that religious rights could occur, and so on and so forth. It's a beautiful uh, tradition, however well-rooted it is in actual history. <laughs> yeah. um, but of course, it has a lot of truth to it. The earliest philosophers, the earliest theologians o- Ovid, wrote poetically. Ovid writes about that too in, in Metamorphoses, yes. that the, the, the yes. poets and the, the, the dramatist is what brings about the separation of the elements and the creation of the world. Yes, yeah. Mm-hmm. yes, yeah, and, and, and it's even in Plato. Uh, yeah. uh, for Plato, numbering things in meter is a way of both bringing order to words, but also in perceiving the intelligible order of the mm. cosmos as yeah. a whole. Yeah. Yeah, so it, it sounds like you're saying that, that this kind of, we've made these sacred secular divides in all these different areas, and you're kind of calling us back to, it's more of an integrated life, that mm-hmm. the thinking and the doing go together. Is that it, kind of a... I would rather risk sounding like a dilettante, you know, like a sloppy philosopher or a sloppy theologian or a sloppy poet. I, I would never be a sloppy poet, but <laughs> uh, uh, I'd rather risk never. sounding like that mm. than risk entering into the intellectual life in a way that's at a remove from our destiny as human beings to know mm. God. Yes. And so one of the ways to do that is to recover both the poetic element in all that we do, all of our thinking, yeah. and also, of course, to renew to in poetry um, the intellectual or the theological, the philosophical dimensions, the fact that poetry is actually one of the oldest ways in which human beings have come to know both the world around them and the word of God. Sure. Mm-hmm. Removing the removals. Hmm. Yeah, I, w- I wonder if the, uh, and then we'll, we'll cut it because we have many questions, but I, w- I wonder if the uh, the enlightenment um, focus on, on the scientific method, which is a good thing, mm-hmm. uh, you know, is is what began to, to strip us where Things that um, things became purely uh, numerical, and where where like we have we have numbers and letters separated from each other, and soul and and yes. quote unquote you know form separated. But yes. anyway, different that, different rooms. It's uh, yeah. If we have time for me to answer that, yeah, that's exactly what happened. Uh, Descartes, with his discourse on method, sure thought that he could give could introduce method as a way of doing things so that even the dumb could philosophize, right? Right, right. <laughs> as, by, by which he meant, if, if you just have an instruction book, uh, a method to follow, then you can achieve whatever you want. Mm. You know, and in some sense he was right, as in uh, a lot of the practice of the contemporary sciences is kind of like throwing things into a food processor and seeing if it works, throwing something else into a food. You know, it's just the experimental method bears fruit. But the experimental method of the physical sciences applies to a very small range of the total things that we know, namely just physical matter. Mm. Um, uh, There's no substitute for uh, what Plato and Aristotle first told us about, and that is uh, habituation, the practice Mm. of thinking, the practice of living that gradually shapes your soul 
and makes it capable not of following a method, but acting independently because it now has a vision of what the good is, of what is true. Unfortunately, the Cartesian problem is it goes pretty deep. You know, young people, when they're worried about their future, they're hoping that they can just get a method that will enable them to make a living and get through life right. and not suffer or, or be homeless and so on and so forth. Yeah. And, and I understand the appeal of the security that might comes with somebody just saying, just tell me what to do. Yeah. But in right. fact, there's no substitute for actually learning how to live. You may or may not want to apply that to Methodism, but that's neither <laughs> here nor there. Yeah. We, uh, we have a ne our next audience question from Mary Ann B. Miller. She is the founding editor of Presence Journal, a journal of Catholic poetry, and professor of English at Caldwell University in Caldwell, New Jersey. She asks the following, James, many of us grew up with the new critical tenet of ambiguity as a valuable device in a literary work. In a view with underlying Christian assumptions, ambiguity was a way of leaving open the possibility of finding faith in a poem. It did not tell the reader what to believe about the poem. It allowed for the will of the reader to be involved in finding faith or hope in the poem. Then there was also a reverence for paradox, which for me seems to carry with it even stronger religious overtones than ambiguity. Paradox created a sense of mystery in the literary work. What are your thoughts on the use of both of these devices in your poetry? I believe you endeavor not to be ambiguous in matters of faith, but would you say that you still incorporate paradox? And how do you achieve paradox? or mystery, if you would say that's a principal effect of paradox in your poems. So uh, as it happens, I've been thinking about a question very similar to this one, if not identical with it, uh, just the last couple of weeks. Um, Beautiful. There are some, th some things that you, you don't think about, but you probably could be thinking about because they're actually present in your life all the time, and this, yeah. and this is one of them. And yeah. So uh, in thinking about how I go about the making of a poem, I realized that um, you know, reality as a whole comes from one source, mm. but change is possible only when there's multiplicity. So it takes two for changeability to be there, whether it's the two of potency and actuality, right, or of here and there, mm. or sure. now and later, uh, and so on sure. and so forth. Interesting. And so in a poem, um, because though a lyric poem might be something that rises in some sense above narrative and drama and can even e express the permanent. Um, nonetheless, every human work, including a lyric poem, to say nothing of narrative and other modes of poetry, it actually requires a principle of two. Mm. Because once you have multiplicity, once you have two, uh, you go from stasis mm. to the condition that makes drama possible. Hmm. And so in any poem, there need to be things that are actually significantly unlike one another, that are even antitheses to each other, sure. that are put into um, dialectic or dialogue or argument yes. or conflict with one another. And I'll just give you a quick example, just um, thinking of um, uh, George Herbert's poem, The Collar, which I was just reading with some people the other week. Uh, it, it's about Herbert, the, the country, Parson raging and ranting that here he has been faithful to God. Uh, he's taken holy orders. He's preaching God's word. Uh, and yet he still feels miserable. 
doesn't feel mm-hmm. as if he's getting the recognition he deserves. Mm-hmm. Is there no pleasure? Is there pleasure for everybody but me, he seems to be asking? Mm-hmm. Because I've got these rope of sands around me, as in the self-imposed limitations that would dissolve like sand, dis- disintegrate like sand, if he would just stay, no. And as, as he rants and rages, and that's pretty much his exact language, suddenly, uh, suddenly I heard, my child. And I replied, my Lord. And that the poem just ends, oh. and uh, and you realize, well, you know, there's clearly conflict there. But how does the conflict work? As you sit back and think about it, of course, first he's hearing, in the background, the first principle of the two, that's that's making this poem possible is Saint Paul saying, "When I was a child, I was concerned with childish things, but then when I matured, I put away childish things." And what is that ranting and raving but a temper tantrum? It's a child yes. saying, "I want pleasure now. I want joy now." Mm-hmm. But then, of course, Christ says, such as these, such as the children, by such as these will the kingdom of heaven be occupied. And so in this poem, we have him, the conflict of two different visions of childhood, childishness, and then the childlike peace that Mm. comes from being called child Mm. by by the Lord. So even, you know, in, in any work of art, you feel these two principles so at least two principles, moving over again, sliding across each other like tectonic plates, and out of them is created a kind of conflict. And sometimes that conflict feels like ambiguity, as in, how do I choose between the two? And maybe the, and the poem is not going to necessarily resolve that. It's rather going to, to show, let you see those two opposed things in a, in a single vision. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the case of paradox, it's that it, to speak of paradox means that there is a solution, just as being childlike mm-hmm. is the mm-hmm. solution to being childish. Mm-hmm. Um, but, the, but the principles are still allowed to, to, to be put in play, and then out of them comes to birth the poem or the other work mm-hmm. of art. Yes. I'm floored by this. What a, what a yeah. beautiful uh, baptism of, like, Taoist thought, like the yin and the yang are like required for for balance and for goodness to go forth, right? But in a, uh, you know, we were kind of talking about that with Paul Pester as well. Yeah. But like the idea, like that, I'm I'm just floored by that. Thank you for but, sharing. But this. to be to be clear, it's it's the reason that the, the two is necessary is because it's finally resolving into the one, right? Just as change finally resolves into eternity and time into or t- and time into. And as you said, there is one source of, yes. of all things. Yeah. Yes. Amazing. I, I love that, uh, that elucidation of that poem. So uh, speaking of paradox and mysteries, mm-hmm. uh, poetry, I think, can help us imagine the future. And for Christians, the hope of the future is resurrection in Christ. Our last audience question, well, actually, it's no longer our last one. We actually got a couple more. Mm-hmm. Our, uh, you have a lot of fans. Our <laughs> next audience question, I should say, comes from Dr. James Wetzel, who is the Augustinian chair at Villanova University. He asks, what in your poet's eye does a resurrected body look like? Does it give the lie to mortal flesh, or does it just unveil the beauty of what was once unloved? Wow. From, from my old colleague at, at Villanova uh, and, and a very gracious man, James Wetzel. Um, you know, one of the joys of my graduate school years was that my roommate was writing a whole dissertation on Dante and resurrected bodies. <laughs> and so he got to go through the whole history of this from origin oh, on. Oh my goodness. Um, my general practice is to, def- to defer to Dante, um, but <laughs> uh, and, but of course Dante. Def- you, you take this one, Dante. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> but uh, and of course Dante, in, in many, though not always, was, was deferring to, to Thomas Aquinas. Um, 
I, I like the the second of those of those two answers. Mm. It's the the final unveiling. Um, your resurrected body will be the fulfillment of your body. It will be the perfection of your body in a way that signifies both you in your essential nature and as a soul called into being by by God Himself as an individual creation. And so, um, and so, I would think that uh, in the resurrection, it would be just this final unveiling where we actually see ourselves and that what we actually look like for the first time. Because yeah. just as we mar our souls, we mar our bodies too in this life, and we don't always. Sometimes we never even see what we really look like. Right. We have uh, two questions actually from Dr. D.C. Schindler um, to to close off our audience questions here. Who's a, a professor of metaphysics and anthropology at the Pontifical John Paul II Institute. First, he asks the following. Here's, here's the large question, followed by the short question. <laughs> Recovering a robust sense of beauty has been a regular theme in your work. The absence of this sense is something not hard to detect in our culture, and indeed seems to be something that afflicts us in a special way in comparison to other cultures in history. There are no doubt many reasons for this, but one idea has recently struck me, which I would be eager to hear your thoughts on. In the Neoplatonic tradition, there appears to be a certain connection between beauty and memory. The experience of beauty is associated with nostalgia, and of course, Plato drew a direct connection between beauty and recollection. Mm -hmm. It seems evident that our culture is in many ways an attack on memory. If there is some relation between memory and beauty, perhaps this hostility to memory creates an inhospitability to genuine beauty as well. Any thoughts? Incredible. Yeah. <laughs> uh, wonderful question. Uh, and in fact, I was just talking about this yesterday. Uh, so so I'm, I think I'm prepared to answer it. Um, beauty is the capacity of existent form to give itself away. Beauty is the sharing of being with other being. When you encounter the beautiful, that experience is suddenly realizing that what the world that may in some sense see, seem closed off to you for a moment, in fact, is already confronting you mm. with itself. And we, we know this from the English language, which of course borrows this in turn from, the, from Latin, uh, that the things that we perceive we call objects, mm. as in they object mm. to us. They throw, they throw themselves at us the way a, a persnickety lawyer might throw himself at, <laughs> you know, at, the, at a statement from a witness. Um, I object. Um, they, they throw, they give themselves to us. They come rushing up to us. And our response is like the response of the sleazy guy in the bar who sees a beautiful woman enter in. He says, haven't I seen you around someplace before? That's the nostalgia of beauty. Hmm. When we encounter the beauty of being, what we're recognizing is that there is a pre-existent order that precedes us, but out of which we ourselves have emerged and to which we belong and in which we are fitted. And so to encounter the beautiful is to see the, so the full shape of things and the way all things hold together and the way we are co both called to them, mm -hmm. but also then called to take our place in the order as, as, as of things as creatures of God. The, the Platonic tradition that, that David's referring to has this beautiful insight that all reality is a great procession and return. Mm -hmm. It's like a parade through the middle of town. It's like um, a pageant of kids in their Halloween costumes. It's all things being made and being sent forth into changeable being by God, but always with the intention of their being called back 
to him. And what that means is that every single participant in that pageant, from the highest to the lowest, from the weird ostrich-like to, you know, <laughs> to the generic fellow, Joe Schmo, that all of it has been conceived in relationship to itself, to one another, sorry, to itself in the sense that it has its own creaturely existence, to others in that we're part of universal being, we're part of creation, and then finally to God, who is the source of being itself. And so, Beauty itself is the reminder, it's the feature of being. And let me note, I'm saying that all being is beautiful, not just there are some beautiful things, but rather there's a quality of beauty in every existent form that is the act of it giving itself away. Amen. All right? And then what does that have to do with memory? Well, I think I saw you run here before, or haven't I seen you run here someplace before, says the says uh, Leisure Suit Larry or whoever he is. Um, <laughs> uh, going back to the ancient world and passing through St. Augustine, with his, his own thinking on memory. The idea of memory was far more robust in the pre-modern world, as in the use of the term was far more extensive. Uh, it played a more central feature than it does in our day. Mm-hmm. For us, we'll say, I, you know, I have a really bad memory. Well, if you said that in, in, the, in you know, a pre-modern world, they would have said, you mean like yourself flickers in and out of being? Like, oh, you're, you're not, <laughs> you're, what does that mean? You only tenuously exist? You know, um, <laughs> we mean like I can look yes. that up later on Google. Yeah. Uh, t- for memory for, for Augustine, memory for Plato, memory was the, so, the, the full constitutive shaping of your being. So when we talk in contemporary education, say, of forming, someone, your formation for the priesthood, for instance, or in the German phrase of Bildung, the idea of Mm -hmm. building up a child in education. Mm -hmm. What we're talking about is making that person into a form. And your memory is that aspect of your soul that receives the form, not just the forms of stuff you know, but you yourself becoming a form. When you dismiss beauty, you also dismiss memory, and therefore you also dismiss the idea of your life having a form which means two things, a form, a story form, as if your life will just be one darn thing after another rather than actually taking a story shape with a beginning, middle, and end, moments of conversion, moments of tragedy, but finally a conclusion and an ending. But also then you reject the idea of yourself having a substantive form to itself as if there were permanent things that needed to belong to you and to shape who you are essentially. And, and that's what we see, right? The, um, the evanescence of information, of culture, just, uh, you know, of, of cultural artifacts just going in and out of us, no sooner received and we sense them, but then we forget them, yes. is it's not just impoverishing because things get forgotten. It's because we ourselves refuse to be fully formed by the things we take into ourselves. Mm-hmm. Gosh, I could go on, but just re- well, I'll say one more quick thing, which means, first of all, we're very careless about the tiny, kind of stuff we take into ourselves. Yes. Right. So we risk Because we don't think it matters. Right. Yeah. I'll just forget that. Yeah. But it's already impressed itself on you. You know, just because you don't believe in this substantive value of memory doesn't mean it's not still in you. This you can deny my, human nature, but it's still you still This is what you. my mother has tried to teach me about horror movies my whole life. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I incline to agree with her. Yeah, 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 yeah. right, right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So um, Dr. Schindler has another question for you. Sure. Do you expect that Marcus Freeman will be able to grow into his job, or do you think that Notre Dame is unwise to hire someone with such inexperience in spite of his obvious charisma and talent? 
So he offers a, a fantastic look for the Notre Dame football team. I, I, I love the fact that we have a Catholic coach with six kids, and I, as a All father right. of five, I love it. <laughs> um, he obviously is incredibly talented, but the big danger that I that um, was posed beginning with the first Notre Dame game last year <laughs> mm-hmm, was that mm-hmm. he's so hyped as a great defensive coordinator, as somebody who's going to go places, but he hasn't really gone anyplace yet. Mm-hmm. And and so in our current age, I think we're, we're, we're alas marked by the decline of our institutions. And so institutional incompetence at the highest levels is just prolific from the federal government to the state government yes. down to university yes. management. Uh-huh. And so I find it totally plausible that Jack Schwarbrick and the Notre Dame administration just fell for the hype that they themselves were probably telling the NBC broadcasters to put on the air in the first place mm-hmm. and that we're going to be in for an awful few seasons. Mm. <laughs> Only you would answer a question about football in such a manner. <laughs> Thank you for that. Well, on that note of likely tragedy, uh, <laughs> due to the limits of our time here today, we're going to wrap up. Thank you uh, so much to, to all of those uh, wonderful folks who submitted audience questions. And thank you, James, for your uh, beautiful responses and just your, your generosity in being with us today. Thank My you. pleasure. Thank you so much. God bless. Absolutely. Now, if uh, any of our listeners would like to get in touch with you or learn more about your work, where should they go? Oh, please do. So there's jamesmatthewwilson.com, a very seldom visited website where, you, where I put, post all my writings. I've been there. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and then there's also um, the, the homepage of our Master of Fine Arts program, which uh, I think is already changing the literary landscape of the United States. Uh, you, you two here have had a chance to hear some of our students, and you talked with Paul. And I just yes. think um, people of goodwill are coming to us, even if they don't need us. And they want to be part of this because it's something bigger than any one of us. And they can get to that and learn more about it at stom.edu slash MFA. Mm. I actually have two writers in mind that I absolutely will be uh, sending to that website uh, after this time. Yeah. So thank you all again for joining us on Forefront 360. For those of you listening, keep pursuing authentic faith and excellent art.